We're studying Christ as our high priest this morning, so you can imagine we are turning to the book of Hebrews. You know, our faith is very much rooted in Judaism. We cannot nor would we want to separate ourselves from those roots, very important roots. They nourish our understanding of our Jewish Messiah who is also, of course, the universal Messiah. But his roots are also in Judaism. It's the source of our understanding Jesus' earthly background and all that he did, all that God did in preparation for his coming. And, of course, that's just the whole Old Testament and the history of Israel. So one of the images from those roots is of Jesus as our high priest. The high priest was an extremely important figure in ancient Israel. It still was so in Jesus' day. So we may need a little bit of a review about the role of the priest. And of course, the book of Hebrews will be a great help for us in that respect. As our high priest... Jesus set an example for us of submission, obedience, sacrifice, intercession. He was fulfilling his messianic mission as our high priest and at the same time as the Lamb of God, as our good shepherd, as the new Adam, as our conqueror, our victorious king, all of those roles were a part of his messianic mission. So he calls us to learn from him that we too have a priestly role to fulfill. So we have to start by looking at some background verses that will help us put put things in context and in perspective. So we will begin in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. For this reason... He had to be made like them. Speaking of Christ here. He had to be made like the rest of the Israelites. The rest of the human race. Fully human in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered by being tempted. And you'll notice the word in brackets tested, we'll talk about it, he is able to help those who are also being tempted, tested, that's you and me, right? Okay, so in this passage, we pick up both on qualities that had to characterize the priest, as well as tasks that he should fulfill. As far as those qualities, you see in the first place, he had to be human, didn't he? He had to be one of us, a brother to our race, he had to have our DNA, in order to be our redeemer, didn't he? The second place we see he had to be a merciful and faithful high priest. He had to be in God's service, not in the service of some government agency or uh, a political agenda. No, that would not do. He had to be strictly loyal to God. In the third place, he had to be subject to suffering. 
Yeah, because we are subject to suffering, are we not? He was also, God himself was subjected to suffering in the days of his flesh. And therefore, subject to testing and tempting. And this is where I want to pick up on that word. It's the Greek word peidazo. And it does mean to, to tempt, but it also means to test. It means the whole gamut. They didn't distinguish between those. In fact, in the Lord's Prayer, when you, when you pray, lead us not into temptation, the word could just as well be translated. It's this same root. Lead us not into testing. Oh, we don't want more testing. We know we've failed so many tests, and we are so subject to failing the tests. Just deliver us from the evil one. That would be a very good interpretation of the Lord's Prayer right there. Okay? This is the word there. So have in mind, yes, it's temptation, but it's also testing. It's the whole gamut that you and I have to experience. That's what he had to be subject to, and he was. And he went through it for us, which means that he's able to help us, to be our helper when we go through those things. As far as specific tasks, the priest made atonement. In other words, offered the sacrifices that were stipulated in the law so that the people could experience peace and communion with God. The term there it's used is make atonement. Translates the Greek hilaskomai, which means literally to take away sins or to bring about their forgiveness. In the Hebrew, it's the root word kippur, which was the word for what covered the Ark of the Covenant. That covering is where they sprinkled the blood of the sacrificed animals. So it meant to cover. That's what hilaskomai can mean also, covering our sins. So what was different about Jesus' priesthood? I know you've already figured this one out, but we need to specify it. In his priesthood, Jesus did not bring the blood of goats and bulls and sheep, did he? Like the Jewish priests would bring in those animals to sacrifice that would represent their lives being given over to God to forgive sins, but rather he brought his own blood, didn't he? Yeah, it didn't just mean his blood. <laughs> Here's a pint of my blood. No, understand that blood there is used as figurative language to mean he brought his life. The blood was a testimony to the fact that he was pouring out his life on our behalf. Have we got it? Okay, so that's what Cain had actually demonstrated by killing Abel, if we may draw in that story. First, an explanation here. Um, God was not the bloodthirsty one. Sometimes we get that bad impression. God must have been really bloodthirsty to want all those animals sacrificed. God was not the bloodthirsty one. We were the bloodthirsty ones. And when God came personally in our midst, we would demonstrate how much we were after his blood. Did we get it? Humanity killed God in Jesus Christ. Do we have that clear? That is the maximum. That's where our sin finally led us to. Our rebellion was manifested there. So, what I was saying about Cain and Abel. This is what Cain was demonstrating as he killed his brother. 
You remember what Jesus said in the Gospels? Inasmuch as you've done it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done it to me. Now, what did that imply? Well, it implied that in God's viewpoint, what Cain did in killing Abel was actually what Cain was doing to God. That's how God took it. That's how God felt it. So that when humanity did have the chance to pull out their old grudge against God for not letting us have our way, that's precisely how it played out. Because there's nothing hidden that will not be revealed. And the rebellion in humanity's heart was publicized at Calvary. Made clear, this is what we really felt about God. God in human form was too attractive a target to be ignored. The enemy was actually after him from the beginning, from the beginning of his life. Remember Herod? Yes? Old Herod the Great, they called him, killing all those babies. Right from the beginning, the enemy wanted to snuff out that life. So the enemy would continue to use humanity's awful sin nature to bring about that murder. But it was only through Jesus that God's mercy and forgiveness could be incarnated in the very place where the problem existed. So that Abel's death was finally vindicated in God's offering of his life. Do we get the connection? We can keep thinking about it as we move on to the next passage, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Read this one with me, if you will. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted, tested in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. All right, we pick up on more important characteristics of our high priest here. Able to empathize with our weaknesses. Did that grab you? It should. If you're reading with your heart and mind, that phrase says, oh, wow. He's not unable to empathize. That means he is able. He knows your weaknesses completely. And he doesn't just do like this to you or like that, pointing the finger. He empathizes. Do we get it? He cares. He understands what we're going through. He's been tempted, tested in every way, just like us, but without giving in. He didn't give in. He never failed the test. He always stood the test. He has walked in our skin. He knows how it feels, but he stood strong on our behalf, loving God always with his whole being, Loving his fellow human as himself. Always. All of us. 
This is unfathomable. This is worthy of worship right there. Do you feel it in your soul? I hope so. Because that's what it says. This is the one who is worthy of worship. Okay. Mm. We have to move quickly through these passages. Sorry. Hebrews 5. We pick up just a little bit more. Every priest is selected from among the people. There it is again. He's one of us. And is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for our sins. In other words, this is the same as before. Making atonement. Representing us before God. And representing God before us. Right? And what else does it say? This is talking about every high priest. The priests of Israel. This was their job. He is able to deal gently. Does that one reach out and grab you? It should. <laughs> That's a description of how the priests of Israel were supposed to deal with the people. This is definitely a description of our high priest that deal gently can also be translated to exercise forbearance, compassion. This is what our God exercises in relation to us, especially those who are ignorant. You say, oh, that's not me. Oof. You said it. If you don't think you're ignorant, then uh, you're guilty. <laughs> you're responsible. Okay. Uh, those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. I really think that those who are ignorant is especially talking about ignorant of the gospel. Those who don't know the good news. Those who don't know what God is really like. Compassionate. Kind. Slow to anger. Great in mercy and faithfulness. That was the old Hebrew creed, wasn't it? Well, uh, those who are ignorant of the gospel or those who are straying. This word can also mean wandering, like they're lost. And it can also mean deceived. They're off track. They're, they're, they've been deceived by the enemy. They don't know. The priest will deal gently with them, not harshly. Do we get it? This is an implication for us and how we are to deal with others who don't know about the gospel or who are wandering, lost, and deceived in this life. Since he himself is subject to weakness. This was the condition of every, high, every priest in Israel. Our high priest was also made subject to weakness. All the weaknesses that we have to experience, but he did not fail in any of them. All right, next passage, 7 through 10. I invite you to read this one with me again, all right? During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who would save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was destined by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. All right, again, now this one is the focus on Jesus' priesthood, how he fulfilled that role. 
In the verses prior to this, it says he didn't appoint himself. No priest can appoint himself. He was appointed by God himself. So in the days of his earthly life, that's literally in the days of his flesh, that's what the, the Greek says, he offered up these prayers, supplications, entreaties. This is part of his priestly intercession with powerful crying, it says literally, and tears to the one who could save him from death. Now, be careful how we understand that. He's not asking, he wasn't asking God to save him from dying. Do we catch the difference? Uh, in John chapter 12, as he began to face that moment, he said, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? It, it was for this reason that I came to this hour. So rather, Father, glorify your name. He was asking God to be glorified through the cross. And of course he was. So he's not asking to be saved from dying, not from the, de the, the experience he was going to have to have on the cross, but from being defeated by death. First Peter 2, he says that, it says that he commended his cause to the one who judges justly. That's what he did as he was dying. Okay, so he was heard in this petition, save me from Death, rescue me. After I've died, rescue me out of death. That's the prayer he was lifting up to God. He was heard because of his reverence. It's an interesting word in the Greek, eulabeia. It means piety, sobriety. Fear of God is in the root of it. So reverence is really actually a very good translation. Reverence is something that's missing in our society today. No? <laughs> Reverence, just like fear of God. No, everything has to be ho, ho, he, he, ha, ha. We're all in it for a good time. Or at least that's sort of the impression you get from our society. Entertainment, that's what it's about, no? We're missing something. Ecclesiastes has something to say about this. Those who are in the house of mourning are more on track than those who are in the house of partying and celebrating. Not that we have to go around with a long face all the time, no. <laughs> we don't want to fall into that syndrome either. But there is a reverence about life, the sacredness of life that's missing today. Life is cheap. It can be thrown away, especially in the early stages or in the later stages. It makes me think about it. I'm getting to those later stages. Yeah. Okay. Reverence. We've got to recuperate that somehow. In, and even though he was the son of God, he had to learn obedience. Now, does that one sort of jar, rattle your cage a little bit? He was truly human. I confess I've had a problem with the word obedience in my life. I didn't like to obey, but I didn't even like the word. Sounds very legalistic. Yeah, the goody two-shoes, they're the ones who always obey. And I didn't want to be one of those. I was a preacher's kid, so you understand. I had this rebellious streak until I learned the etymology of the word obey. Wow, this gave me a whole new attitude. Obey, in the Greek, it's hipakuo. In the Latin, it's not a direct into the Latin, but it's where our word comes from in English and Spanish. Ob audire is the Latin. And it means to listen in a certain direction. It's not a legalistic term. It means who's got your attention? Who's got your ears? To obey is to, I'm going to listen. 
to the one voice that can tell me the truth. And I'm going to ignore all those other voices. No, I will not be led astray by them. So, really important word. Mm. To learn to listen to him in the midst of all these voices that are clamoring for my attention. Jesus Christ always listened in the direction of his father so that even his sufferings were learning experiences for him. They were not wasted on him. Even so, we must not despise our suffering because it's a choice tool in God's hands. And it's also a decision that I will repeatedly make to live under Christ's rule instead of my own, even when I'm going through the valley of the shadow, even when I'm suffering. So that means we don't despair over the awful state of the world, sometimes the awful state of the church, and sometimes the awful state of my life. We don't despair. Because our, our high priest gives us hope and strength. The book of Hebrews says he ever lives to intercede on behalf of those who are coming to God through his name. Is that you? I hope so. He's interceding for you even now. That's a refreshing word. The book of Romans, Paul is also going to say that interceding on our behalf with groans too deep for words. So finally, it says, when he had been made perfect. Now, did that phrase knock your socks off? Jesus had to be made perfect. I thought he was perfect always. He was perfect for every stage of life that he went through. But remember, he was growing. So he was growing into that perfection. And this word is also interesting to take note of. Teleyo'o, teleyotheis, comes from the verb teleyo'o, which means to make complete, to finish, mature. So Jesus was growing. He was mature for every stage of life, but when he was only three, he was not the same as at 10 or at 15 or 25 or 30. He was growing into that maturity in which he would become the author of our eternal salvation. We got it? Very important. So that eternal salvation that he brings us, he was actually working on that all through his public ministry. It wasn't just the last 24 hours. All through his public ministry, he was being the Savior, living, acting in our midst like the Savior that he was. It's just that that work reached its culmination on the cross. That's where that work was completed. As he incarnated God's mercies, declared and acted out our forgiveness in the face of the worst human crime in all of history so that the power of God's love was put on display right there on the cross as he established God's reign in a human life, in human history, thereby making it accessible to you and me in his resurrection because he had lived it out fully in human flesh. Does that make sense? That's why you and I can access it in his name. I, I want that rule in me, Lord Jesus. You ruling over me. This eternal salvation would be for all those who would 
obey, it says. That means they would listen in his direction. Can you hear his voice speaking your name, calling on you? Obey, listen, let me have your ears. That's what he's asking for. And so he was designated, named by God as our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. In Genesis 14, we don't have time to go into all of that, but it just means that he was of the same dignity as that mysterious figure. He was like the successor to that prophetic figure in the Old Testament. So we come to the application to ourselves of this priesthood. How do we follow in those footsteps? Well, in this next section, uh, Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, the writer to the Hebrews is actually going to start swinging and hitting hard. Are you ready? Because in trying to understand and apply our priesthood, we have to mature, we discover we too have to mature into this role. This is what we've been trying to emphasize this whole year from the beginning of the year, growing in mature discipleship. So he calls us to account here. We have to mature into this priestly role, and in order to do so, we have to come to recognize areas where we have been slow to learn. Is that you? I can't confess your need. I can only confess mine. I have been painfully slow to learn some very important lessons in my life. And consequently, took a while to assimilate even basic truths of God's Word. That's what he's going to touch on here. Mm. Oh, I left out the last one, sorry. Greek. <laughs> uh, for source, aitios, cause, author. It means all three of those things. Author, cause, source. All right, we go on to the next one. Here's the passage. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. Shall we read it together? About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Starts out with this idea that I've got so much more to tell you. Does this remind you of a passage in the Gospel of John? So much more to say about this. It's what Jesus said in the upper room, John chapter 16, to his disciples on that last night with them. Oh, his heart was just overflowing with things that he wanted to tell them. But he looked at them and he realized how dull they were of hearing, how slow they were to learn. And he said, I'm going to have to leave it to the Spirit. When he comes, he will guide you into all the truth. How many times does God say that to us? <laughs> there it is right there in the Word, but now it's the Holy Spirit who's going to have to apply it to you and help open your brain so that you understand when you get in the situation, ah, this is what God meant. Yeah. So, dull of hearing. 
Is that ever us? What causes this? Ought to be teachers already, still needing someone to teach us the basics. Still on the biberon, <laughs> still on the feeding bottle after so many years, drinking milk instead of solid food. You remember how in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul called the Corinthians infants. In effect, acting like people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. He said he couldn't give them solid food. They simply weren't ready for it yet. Because there was jealousy and quarreling among them. That was the evidence that made it clear to Paul they were still infants, just babes, children. Hebrews will express it with this other term, unskilled in the word of righteousness. The term literally means unproven, not tested, inexperienced. This comes from not practicing, taking the word and applying it to our daily situations. What does Jesus have to say about this? How would Jesus respond under those circum these circumstances? Deliberately, intentionally applying. You see, this situation contrasts with the ones that the, the writer to the Hebrews calls mature. The mature, he uses here the same word as before, when Jesus had been made perfect, when he was made mature, then is when he became that author of our salvation, the source of our salvation. Those who are mature, they're the ones who eat solid spiritual food. And it's because their faculty for discerning, they're constantly exercising it. They are seeing life through God's eyes, through the word, and recognizing, no, I don't want to go that direction. No, that is not healthy. That's not safe. This is the way. They're constantly exercising that faculty. In fact, uh, interesting word here. It says they have this faculty trained. Trained in discerning good from evil. It, the word trained here comes from the Greek word gymnazo. That's where we get our word gymnasium. That's where you go to exercise, right? Are you, have you, te has apuntado a un gimnasio? <laughs> have you uh, fulfilled that New Year's resolution? Yeah, I'm going to go to the gym three times a week. Okay, well, spiritually, we need to go to the gym. We need to exercise our sense of discernment, the power of discernment. And, of course, it takes God's standard being written on our hearts and minds so that we have those criteria, right? So... We've got to decide that we're going to learn this. It's, it's exactly the problem that Adam, Adam and Eve had in the garden. They decided, no, we, we want to decide what's good and evil. We want this in our power. Yeah. So they abandoned their teacher. And they put themselves under the enemy. So, in effect, the Genesis story is a picture of us showing us how we decided to let our appetites rule 
and determine what's good and bad. We all fell into that same trap. And it is a trap. So we have to go back with a new resolution. Want to learn God's criteria for distinguishing between good and evil. My flesh simply cannot tell me the truth. Well, I mean, it tells me the truth about how delicious this is and that, etc., etc., right? It tells me the truth about whether this bed is comfortable and this pillow. Yeah, but those truths will not get you very far in facing the challenges of this life, will they? You need a bigger truth than that. Just like the world cannot tell me the truth. And yet, who are the real influencers in our children and our young people today? Who are they? The big ones who are influencing. Are they telling them the truth? Are they helping to shape those brains in a positive way? One of our students at the seminary did his master's thesis on this subject and came to the conclusion that today's education is practically in the hands of internet, social media, Disney, Warner Brothers, Amazon, and Netflix. (laughs) Yeah, they're the ones who are the big influencers on our kids' lives. They are molding their brains and their souls and their criteria, their values, and their future. Are we okay with that, church? Takes our breath away, doesn't it? Because in effect, they are the Pied Pipers of this century. And where they are taking our children is not a safe place. Parents, grandparents, young adults, young people, we need to take our powers of discernment to the gymnasium so that we absorb these criteria and begin to apply them everywhere and especially when we have to be on internet, social media. This world is determined to consume our kids' minds with garbage and corruption. And who's going to be responsible? Nobody raised their hand. (laughs) Yeah. That means we're all responsible, aren't we? Maturity. What does it mean in this difficult day and age? Well, we know it means growing up in Christ. Paul told us that in Ephesians 4. It means training in his criteria for distinguishing between good and evil. That's where it's got to start getting our hearts and minds trained on his criteria. No longer ruled by the world's values and quickly distinguishing them and calling them what they are. Not being afraid to call them out. No, that's not the values that God wants for his people. Following Christ's path into the priesthood And I know somebody will say here, oh, wait, I I didn't study all of what I studied to be a priest. That's this culture, okay? We're not asking you to be like a priest in this culture, but in the biblical culture, the biblical understanding of a priest. That's why in our evangelical churches, we don't have the office of the priest, so we can 
get over that confusion. We are all called to act as priests in the church, in the body of Christ. It's called the universal priesthood of the believers, meaning that our job is to represent God before our fellow humans, speaking and acting on his behalf before others, ambassadors for Christ. That's the expression Paul used. And the other side of that coin is representing the others before God. In other words, intercession, laying down our lives on behalf of others. This is the priestly role that we're called to. It's pretty overwhelming, isn't it? Para estas cosas, ¿quién es suficiente? Sometimes the word comes to me more in Spanish than in English. Uh, who is sufficient for these things? We're not. The very size of the task drives us into God's arms. Um, in fact, we probably should feel. Does, does Christian maturity ever feel like an elusive goal? that just keeps receding farther away on the horizon. Like, these shoes are so big, I will never grow into them. That's okay to feel that. That in itself pushes us toward the Lord. If we're ever going to be his hands and feet in the world, we're going to have to keep calling on him, keep walking with him, keep appealing to him. He'll get us there. It's just a bigger task than what we imagined. Yeah? Nobody said anything, so <laughs> I hope you feel this with me. Okay, so we need to take little steps toward maturity, don't we? Yeah, I, I understand that. So we need some little steps to help us move in that direction. And I say the first one is in practicing openness. Transparency, vulnerability, honest exposure of our true self, being willing to confess our weaknesses instead of insulating ourselves against being known. You know, that's what Facebook and all that social media does for us. I can put up this image, and this is what I make people think I am. And I try to believe it myself, but I know inside I don't measure up to that. No, we don't. So why not drop the facades and be who we are with each other? When we refuse to confess our true inner needs, we're just shutting out the light and the truth of God's healing presence. Where there's fear, insecurities, anguish, loneliness, those burdens need to be shared, not covered up so nobody knows. Are you with me? What happened to God on the cross? How open was he hanging there naked? Not only in body, he was revealing God's heart to us. God's deepest heart of compassion. Total exposure. Let's keep it in mind. Little steps. <coughs> Practicing openness with each other. <clears throat> A second one, we got to recognize our shallowness. To grow toward maturity, we have to recognize where we are immature, where we are dull or sluggish, 
The society around us simply cannot be our standard. I can't even look at Fulano and Mengano and say, oh, well, I'm certainly doing better than that person. No, it's not about comparing us ourselves to others, but to Jesus. He's our standard. He's the only one who can make us like him. And that's his goal. Is that yours? <coughs> Maybe you say, oh, it's too much. I'll never get that. Well, put your eyes on him. <laughs> that's the only way he will ever be able to impact us so that we become more like him. The evolving fantasies of our culture simply reflect the futility of the human way of thinking. Infantile fantasies give way to juvenile fantasies. And those give rise to adult fantasies. And when you live in that fantasy world, the tendency is for them to become more and more corrupt. Sluggish morality has a name. It's called debauchery, licentiousness. In Spanish, libertinaje. Yeah. And it's spiraling out of control in our society. That's, that's our culture today. No breaks, headed toward the cliff. Desperately in need of a savior. Desperately in need of you and me fulfilling our priestly role of representing God to them, representing them before God. Okay, so that's the third point here. Practicing the priesthood of the believer. Getting it into our mentality. It's, it's, it, I know it's sort of a foreign image to us. We need to recover it and realize this is our calling. This is what really points us toward maturity. When we assume this responsibility, the priesthood of the believers means that every person has direct access to God for forgiveness. Repentance and faith, every believer is responsible for that. So every Christian is ultimately responsible for their own growth. Yeah, you're responsible for that. Not me, not your professors or your teachers online or in real time. You are responsible for your growth. So do something about it. Mature in your priestly role on behalf of others in Christ's name. Where did Jesus complete his priesthood? You know, we've said it already. As he lay down his life. As he laid down his life for us. Presenting it to God as an offering on our behalf. And is he still exercising that priestly role on our behalf? We already said it. I hope you picked up on it. Interceding ever lives to intercede on our behalf. So... We're called to imitate him, following his footsteps, sacrificing, serving, laying down our lives, interceding. Will you listen for a moment and just bow your heads quietly as we finish up here? As we cursed him, he blessed us. As we broke his body, he mended our souls. As we rejected his authority, he would bear our rebellion with patience and forgiveness. As we apparently defeated him, he showed us true victory. As we, humanity, poured out cruelty on him, he poured out kindness on us. 
as we hated him, he loved and forgave us. As we killed him, he was giving us life. This is our high priest. Lord Jesus, we bless your name. We want to follow in your footsteps. Please be our teacher. Please help us. We pray it in your name.